Thank you, Tanner, for reading our scripture tonight. We're grateful for your presence. If you're visiting, we encourage you to come back and be with us at every opportunity you have. We're going to be looking tonight at the passage that was read a moment ago, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, as we think about the theme, the master of the sea. Jesus is indeed Lord of heaven and earth. Imagine if you can what it would have been like to have been selected as one of the disciples or apostles of Christ. Can you imagine spending some three and a half years of your life watching and listening to Jesus? When I look at the lives of the disciples or the apostles, I see men that came to a clear understanding that the one that had called them into service was indeed the Son of God. Jesus used a number of ways to demonstrate his lordship. In John chapter 6, the apostle Peter acknowledged on one occasion the marvelous words of our Lord. It was said of Jesus, no man ever spoke like this man. And so no doubt listening to him would have made a profound impression upon our lives. But then to see him at work, to observe how he dealt with people, the compassion, the love, the mercy that he showed people. And then not just the love, mercy, and compassion of Jesus, but to see firsthand his great miracles. I think that it would have made a great impression upon us. And we, like the disciples or apostles of Christ, would have come to the conclusion that this was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Mark, the fourth chapter, we find Jesus teaching, preaching, doing great things on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. As the chapter draws to a close, we read about Jesus encouraging the disciples to cross over to the other side. In other words, they're going to travel from west to, to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And so I want us to begin by looking at the context here. What we're going to see is Jesus demonstrating his power over nature. The stilling of the sea. In verses 35 through 38, we have the men who are in the storm. And really what transpires is the raging sea. In verse 35, we have the suggestion of the Savior. Note, if you would, what is recorded by Mark. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. In the, in the context, in verses 36 and 37, we read of, the suddenness of a storm that arises. Listen to what Mark said. When they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose. Note, if you would, that Mark makes the notation that it was a severe storm. He said the waves beat into the boat. So that, so that it was already filling. But note, if you would, 
what is said in verse 38. In verse 38, we are introduced to the sleeping Savior. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. Now, let me just pause here for a minute. You have to picture this event. They are in the middle of the sea, and this storm is raging. And what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. Sometimes we use the expression calm, cool, and collected. There was a calmness about Jesus. And you see that calmness throughout his earthly ministry. The latter part of verse 38 introduces us to the cry of the men. They awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I want to just ask this question. Isn't it odd to you that they would awaken Jesus and ask him? It doesn't surprise me that they would awaken him because they needed help. What does surprise me is that they awaken him and ask him the question, do you not care that we perish? Does Jesus care? You go back and you look at some of the preceding chapters and you will see Jesus one-on-one -on -one with any number of people. I think about what Mark said relating to Peter and his mother-in-law. Peter's mother-in-law had been sick with a fever. What did Jesus do? He healed her, didn't he? What about the leper that came to Jesus and said, Master, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus did what? He healed him. Those are just two examples that demonstrate to us and it should have demonstrated to the disciples that Jesus did indeed care. But I think Jesus uses situations and he used situations that occurred around him to demonstrate his lordship, to show to the disciples and to show to others that he was who he claimed to be. And that is the Son of God. So now I want us to look at verses 39 through 41 and think about the master who stilled the sea. Jesus is the master of the sea. And as we look at this particular text, what we're going to find out is that the greatness and goodness of Jesus was on display. There are a lot of things that could be said about Jesus. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those four gospel narratives provide us with a glimpse into the heart and life of Jesus of Nazareth. When we begin to look at his life, we see any number of things. But one of the things that ought to stand out is his greatness. A second is his goodness. I want us to think for just a minute about some of the things that the disciples learned while in the middle of the sea. First of all, I would suggest unto you that they, that is the disciples, learned about the awesome power of Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 39. In verse 39, here is what is recorded for us. Then he arose 
and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I want to ask you this question tonight. Is there any storm that we may face in this life that Jesus is ill-equipped or unable to address or handle? The answer is absolutely not. You and I, we are literally in the sea of life. And there are a lot of storms that come our way. There are a lot of heartaches and trials and tribulations and problems. And yet one of the things that we have to understand is that Jesus has the power to rescue us and to help us. There are a lot of passages of scripture that come to mind. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Peter said, Casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, at verse 19, the apostle Paul talks about how God's people, they belong to him. Before we look at that passage, I want to share with you another passage as we think about the awesome power of Jesus. When you read the book of Revelation, there are a lot of things that are going on. Primarily, the Roman Empire is this massive system or government, if you please. And they are running roughshod over the people of God. Many of God's people have lost their lives due to their faith in the Lord. Domitian was on the throne. He wanted to be acknowledged as Lord and God. And so you have numerous people that have been martyred for the cause of Christ. And yet Jesus would say, you be faithful even if it costs you your life, according to Revelation chapter 2 at verse 10. There were other saints, they had not been martyred, but they were potentially facing martyrdom. And so in the book of Revelation in chapter 7, you have a picture of the 144,000. This is not a literal number, but rather it is a figurative expression. And in that chapter, you have the ceiling of the 144,000. All that is, is a depiction for the people of God to understand that, look, we are under the protective wings of Almighty God. God knows who we are. We are under his care and protection. Does God have the power to care for his people? Absolutely. Now, in the latter part of the chapter, you'll read about a great multitude before the throne of God. And really, John is simply addressing the same thing. These are God's people. They belong to him. They are under his protective care. So whether you live or die, guess what? You're under God's care and protection. God has that kind of power. And so in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus would say, I was dead and now I'm alive. Behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of Hades and death. So Jesus has that kind of power. Now in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Paul said, the firm foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knows them that are his. God knows his people, doesn't he? And God is concerned about his people. Because God cares about us and because he understands our plight here on planet earth, he understands that we face the storms of life from time to time. What did he instruct us to do? Cast our cares on him. Why? Because he cares for us. 
God is our creator. Does it not stand to reason that the very creator of heaven and earth is concerned about his creation? We are the crown of God's creation. Look at the sun, the moon, the stars, the universe, the world in which we live. Beautiful as it may be, it pales in comparison to the human family. And so we belong to God. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer said, We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who has been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, in light of that, let us draw boldly under the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you read about the disciples on the sea, were they in need? Yes, they were. Did Jesus care about them? The answer is yes. There's a second lesson here, and that is the disciples learned about the rock-solid promises of Jesus. Look at verse 35 again. In verse 35, Jesus said, let us cross over to the other side. Now drop down and look at chapter 5, verse 1. Then they did what? They came to the other side of the sea. They were traveling from west to east. Jesus made the suggestion, let us go, let's, let's go to the other side. Did he not make provision for them to get to the other side? What's that say to us? It says when Jesus gives us his word, we can bank on it. There are some people in our world today, their word means little. Do you remember the day when people would engage in business transactions with a handshake? Now people have corporate attorneys working on their behalf. And any number of contracts will be signed in an effort to protect two parties. Well, when our Lord gives us his word, we can bank on it. We can depend on it. Take, for example, what Jesus said regarding salvation. Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I want to just ask you this question. Is Jesus who he claimed to be? Is he the son of God? If he is not, we're wasting our time here. Jesus is the son of God. We have to believe that. But then, out of an obedient heart, we come to obey the gospel of Christ, like the saints in Ephesus did. When Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.13, he said, In whom you also believed, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So we're baptized into Christ. We contact the blood of Christ. What then is the promise? Do you remember what Jesus said? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 6 verse 18, it's impossible for God to lie. So if I do what Jesus said to do, will he save me? The answer is yes. This is just a small example of when Jesus says, that he will do something, he means it. Jesus is the kind of person that keeps his word. Jesus is reliable, faithful, dependable. In John 14, when Jesus said to the apostles before his death on Calvary, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now, when Jesus talked about those eternal abiding places awaiting his people, did he know what he was talking about? Did he give us his word regarding our hope in heaven? Again, the answer is yes. All of the hopes and aspirations that we have as members of the body of Christ, as followers of Jesus, are in this book that we call the Bible. It's either true or it's false. It's either truth or it is a fabrication of the truth. The bottom line is this. The disciples, they learned about Jesus and his word. They learned about the rock-solid promises of our Lord and Savior. There's a third lesson. They learned about the presence of Jesus. Go back and look, if you would, at verse 36. Jesus had made the suggestion to cross over to the other side. Verse 36 tells us, when they left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. So the picture is, there are a lot of boats in the Sea of Galilee. And yet Jesus is only in one boat. As we travel through life, we need to make sure, we need to make absolutely sure that the Lord is navigating us along the sea of life. Can you imagine living without the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Think about how many people on earth tonight do not know God, know nothing about him. Think about how many people have heard about God but choose to ignore him. Countless others, they've heard about the Lord. They understand that there was a man named Jesus. He came to earth, lived and died, supposedly resurrected from the grave, coming again. Not sure whether or not they believe that, but that's, that's a good summation of it. But they haven't bought into Christianity. They're living without the Lord. I can't imagine living my life without the Lord. What we need to see is that we are, in a sense, pictured as people in the sea of life. And if Jesus is not a viable part of our lives, something's amiss. I would submit unto you tonight that Jesus needs to have an abiding presence in our lives, day in and day out. There are a lot of people that look to the Lord in times of crisis. As a matter of fact, that's the only time they ever think about the Lord. Wouldn't it be better to face life day in, day out, through the highs and lows, joys and frustrations of life with Jesus? Jesus ought to be the pilot of our lives, not the co-pilot, but he ought to be the one navigating. He ought to be the captain of our lives. In John chapter 6, I alluded to this passage a moment ago. Jesus had identified himself as the bread of life. John said that 
when many of the disciples heard that saying, they went back and walked no more with him. And so Jesus asked the question, will you also go away? Simon Peter spoke up and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. And we've come to believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What was Peter saying there? I think what Peter was saying is, Lord, we cannot live separate and apart from you. They had the opportunity to go back. They could have left the Lord. They chose not to. You and I, we, have, we are besieged by any number of things every day right here on planet Earth. There are tough times, there are good times, there are joys and there are frustrations. I want to meet the highs and lows of life knowing that Jesus is at my side. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, listen to what he said. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord Jesus Christ ought to have a real presence in our lives. I mentioned a moment ago when crisis, when, when crises occur in the lives of people, typically they think about God and they think about the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to suggest that we ought to get up every day grateful to Almighty God, grateful to be members of the body of Christ who enjoy the cleansing power of the blood of Christ to know that one day we have a home in heaven, to know that God is at our side day in and day out. That ought to bring, that ought to bring joy to our hearts. There is a fourth lesson, and that is they learned about the peace that is given by Jesus. Look, if you would, at verse 39. He arose, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Isaiah, in the long ago, pictures the wicked in the midst of the turbulent seas of life. And he said, For the wicked, they have no rest. I want to ask you this question tonight. How many people do you think will go to bed tonight in a drunken stupor? How many people do you think in our world are self-medicating themselves right now? There are other people that are using other forms of illegal drugs, again, to medicate. Their lives are filled with worry, anxiety. They feel hopeless. They're distraught. There's a sense of despondency. They're discouraged. They've lost loved ones. They've, they've lost relationships that matter to them. Their lives are filled with turmoil and trial and tribulation. Here's the point. They are looking in all the wrong places. I promise you, there are not enough pills in this world to give you the peace that Jesus can give you. There is not enough alcohol in this world to put you in a drunken stupor to give you the peace that Jesus can give you. 
Listen again to what Jesus said. Peace, be still. In John chapter 6, we have, an, we have an account of Jesus, again, the disciples on the sea. When they saw the Lord, they were frightened. And Jesus said, it is I, do not be afraid. Do you have fears, anxieties, worries? Jesus said, do not be afraid. When you have, as Paul said, the peace that passes all understanding, when you enjoy true peace, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live in anxiety and worry. I mentioned people all across our globe that are trying to escape through drugs and alcohol. To young people, I would say drugs and alcohol aren't the answer. To older folks that ought to know better, I would say drugs and alcohol are not the answer. The answer to a life of peace, serenity, and happiness is Jesus, the Son of God. Isaiah, some 750 years before Jesus ever made his entrance into the world, depicted him as the Prince of Peace. In chapter 9, verse 6, when Jesus was born in a manger nearly 2,000 years ago, that angelic host cried out, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. Did Jesus not come to give peace? In Ephesians 2, Paul said in about verse 14, speaking of Christ, for he is our peace. If you don't have Jesus in your life, you will never, ever, ever, ever have peace, I promise you. You'll never have the peace that you can have that is, that is described in Scripture. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul said, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder he's the Prince of Peace. There is a sixth, or rather a fifth lesson here. And that is they learned about the person, Jesus. I think behind all of this was the intent to reveal the fullness of his identity. You see, the apostles, the disciples of Christ, they, like us, they had to examine the evidence and then draw their own conclusions. And the Lord was revealing his life to them and before them. So look at verse 41. Jesus has rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And Mark said, The wind ceased and there was a great calm. Verse 40. Listen to what Jesus asked. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and sea obey him? First and foremost, what does this demonstrate before the disciples or apostles? It says to them, Jesus is God. 
That's what they needed to learn. That's what they had to learn. That the one before whom we stand, the one with whom we eat, the one with whom we pray, the one with whom we share fellowship on a regular basis, this is the son of the living God. Look again at what Mark said. They ask, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus demonstrated his deity. Paul would say in Colossians chapter two, verse nine, in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We're talking about incarnate God, God incarnate. The word who became flesh, who emptied himself and took upon himself human flesh. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 10, a body was prepared for him. That is, that body was prepared in the womb of Mary so that Jesus could tabernacle among men so that he might die for the sins of the world. And the apostles, they had to come to believe that this is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Think about Peter. I mentioned him just a moment ago in Mark, or rather in John chapter 6. When many people were leaving the Lord, when people were walking away in droves, Peter said, you are the Christ. He said, we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what we ought to see, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that he is the master of the sea. When Jesus rebuked the wind and stilled the sea, it was a demonstration of his awesome power and it said to these men, I am God. In conclusion tonight, I ask you this question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he your savior? Have you obeyed him? If you haven't obeyed him, you're missing out on the greatest way to live on planet Earth. There's no other life like Christianity. You want to live a life of peace and happiness and joy, serenity? Do you want to go to bed at night without the burden of guilt? You can do that. Here's what you need to do. You need to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. You have to be willing to repent like they did on Pentecost Day in Acts 2, verse 38. To confess his name before others like the eunuch did as recorded by Luke in Acts 8, verse 37. And then to acknowledge not only, is he, not only is he the Son of God, but that you are willing to be buried with him in a watery grave of baptism so that you can rise to walk in newness of life knowing that every sin has been washed away. When Paul recounted his conversion to Christ, he said that Ananias instructed him to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins. He did that, and the Lord saved him. You can do that tonight, and the Lord will save you. Maybe you're here tonight, your life is not what it ought to be. Maybe you're not living faithfully day in and day out. Maybe the storms of life have so overwhelmed you that you're off course. 
The Lord hasn't been navigating your life for a long time. You gave up on him. I want to encourage you this hour to reclaim Jesus as the Lord of your life. John said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. God will forgive because God keeps his word. Would you come as we stand and sing?